UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? Oh, I remember man. when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. <laughs> and he rips him down, he puts him in his seat, and he looks at him and goes, that was fucking hilarious, but you really just got to shut up. I think I'd rather die in nuclear war than go to Olympia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen... Boys and girls, welcome back to the UMass Basketball Podcast. I don't even think it's unnamed anymore. It's the UMass Basketball Podcast. My name is Curry Hicks Sage, coming to you live from New York City. Joining me, as always, our stalwart producer in Washington, D.C., the Bennett Carroll. And in Boston, back this week, CalMass9, Andrew Callagy, a.k.a. A. Callagy on Twitter, A.K.A. A. Kalegi for longtime friends of the show. Cal, good to have you back. And yeah, I'm happy to be back, man. I, I want to apologize to the listeners. I've, I've I've taken up a new job that I'm working West Coast hours basically for it. So uh, doing this pod has been a, a you know difficult for me the last couple of weeks, but I'm happy to be back. And we have. A really long, really quality, especially for the kind of A10 junkies and and UMass Twitter junkies out there, a long interview coming up with Matt Shelton-Eyde, who is a VCU diehard and the proprietor of, uh, I forget the the, rant, the VCU website, but it's also, he also started A10 Talk, and he's a really interesting guy. He owns a couple small businesses in Richmond, and he's just a good dude, and we had a great chat with him. So the intro tonight is going to be very brief. Look, you know, since we last talked, which was Friday night when the show dropped, um, so it hasn't been long because this will probably come out Tuesday morning. UMass put up a great effort against Davidson. There's just no other way to describe it. It was a fantastic effort. The way I look at it is two really frustrating, particularly one of them, fouls to Malik Hines early in the second half completely changed the complexion of that game. And it's not that I'm saying, oh, the refs are so terrible, although the refs were so terrible. It's that when you have a call like that, it's game-changing in large part because you don't have anyone else you can go to. So you're playing five guys and one of them has to sit and he's seven for eight in that game and dominating, absolutely dominating down low. And yeah. he goes he goes out and all of a sudden things happen and you're down 13. And it just, you know, there were some possessions there in the second half that I felt like we were a little purposeless on offense. But on the whole, it was it was a top seven, top eight performance of the year. The guys played ridiculously hard. Pipkins had 31. He was fantastic. Pierre was great. CJ Anderson once again actually uh, oh no wait was CJ I guess the game prior CJ was really good. I think in this one he was fairly quiet, but he was great against GW last week. Um and you know it, it shit happens. We're here for the rest of the season. We know what we're building towards now. We can't get caught up in any other in any individual result. It's all about playing hard. We've talked about it a million times. I'm ready to move on to VCU. We also played G- George Mason on Saturday. Same deal. What else is there to say? I'll be at the game. If you're there, hit me up. Cal, you got anything to say before Matt Shelton Hyde comes on? No, uh, not really. I just think like uh, it was just fun to watch. And like Pipkins is just absurd. Uh, he he's could, a special he, player. Special he's player. Just, right. And he, he could absolutely win a 10 player of the year this year uh he won't because the way the voters he he definitely won't he definitely won't he he honestly really i really i made a long case about it on twitter i truly believe he 
he's just as you know. And if he's not first team, fuck everything. Fuck all. Oh haters. my god! If he's not first team, like I'll I'll riot. Like he's he. I, I probably agree with like the masses that he probably shouldn't win it because you're talking about a four or five win team that in the in the, in conference that um you're giving a player of the year to. But yeah, and either way, we might get into this in the mailbag. But let's get let's get into the interview because I think it's really really good and it's fun. It's a fun listen. Okay, folks, it is my great pleasure at this time to bring on our first guest in the last few episodes, I think, uh, from VCU. He covers VCU, a prolific presence on Twitter, a interesting guy, a good voice around Atlantic 10 hoops, and really kind of, in many ways, the dean of the uh, VCU Twitter sphere, which is vast, and we'll, we'll get into that. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you Matt. Shelton Eyed, and his Twitter handle is Matt1T, if I'm not mistaken. Shelton Eyed, E-I-D-E. Matt, uh, we're so glad to have you here tonight. Fellas, it's good to be on. So, Matt, there's a lot of mystique, I think, or, or maybe not mystique, but a lot of intrigue surrounding not only the VCU basketball program, but really it's fan base and it's one that i've been intrigued by really since they joined the a10 and i guess it would have been 2014 so this is your fifth season 14 15 16 17 is that right 14 well uh, it was 13 actually it was 2012 2013 was our first season so this is your sixth year already but very quickly uh more so than probably any other new entrant into the atlantic 10 for a variety of reasons but mainly because of its robust fan base, VCU became kind of a fixture uh, really out of the gate. And for anyone who's been to a conference tournament, the, the stories of the VCU fan base are legion. They're, uh, they come in huge numbers. They have a really great band, a unique fan culture. And it's one that, frankly, initially, uh, I probably liked a little more than I've than I do now. At this point, as much as I respect your fan base, it's becoming a little grating and uh, and uh, a little bit irritating at times. But I still uh, do do harbor a great amount of respect. But I want to talk to you about, you know, for fans in the Atlantic 10 who maybe weren't terribly familiar with VCU prior to 2011, uh, when they made that miraculous Final Four run as a play-in team and beat Kansas and and made it all the way to the final four. Talk about the evolution of VCU basketballs and, and it's, and in turn it's fan base from let's say really kind of uh, 2000 to 2011, just, just break it, break down like how it got to be sure. where it is. And, and just sort of for those of us who don't know, um, you know, a whole lot about the history. Sure. So, so for, for starters um, to go back a little before that, I won't go through the whole history, but, VCU, um, it's a things. It's a relatively new program. Um, I was founded, I believe, around '68. The um, school or basketball? Sorry, I missed that. Basketball, VCU basketball. Um, but basically, in 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 a short amount of time, they got really good thanks to um, basically a head coach, this guy named JD Barnett. And in the '80s, 
Um, they were very good. Uh, VC was a two seed, which may surprise you, in an NCAA tournament um, back in the early 80s. But then uh, we lost a coach, made a bad hire. Uh, you guys are familiar with that. We're all familiar with that kind of stuff. More, we're familiar with bad hires, plural, but carry on. Basically, so it sort of um, took a dive um, in the sort of basically through the entire 90s. Um, and it kind of struggled until they took a shot in 2004. Uh, we had we had a head coach resign after a few just kind of bad years, um, kind of actually similar years to this current year. And then in 2004, VCU just took a shot, and they hired a 27-year-old assistant on the team, Jeff Capel. Former Duke point young, guard, of course. Former Duke point guard. Um, and uh, he – yeah, he had – well, I mean, he was he was there actually the year before, but in 2004 was really the breakout year. He had a young team. We had – he had some really good players um, that could score the basketball, and that was kind of the beginning of this new era of VCU basketball. Um, Capel, he went to one NCAA tournament, but he sort of set the foundation, and most importantly, he recruited a, a player named Eric Maynard. And then Anthony Grant, who we all know now, um, he took over for Capel when Capel left. and. In 2007, it was his first year, uh, set a record wins, 28 wins. Obviously went to the tournament and beat Duke, which was – that was kind of – that was the beginning of just sort of the craziness um, and definitely the sort of foundation building of that. And then um, obviously Grant recruited our en- entire basically Final Four team and then in, in 2009 got him back to the tournament – had another a, a close first round loss against um, Drew Holloway and his UCLA team. I don't, I don't remember. If, I don't think Westbrook was on that team. And you know, three three years with him, but two NCAA tournaments, just kind of building on what Capel did. Shaka, who is another unproven um, coach, but VCU had this program they developed um, under Norwood Teague and this guy Mike Ellis called the Villa Seven program, and what it was was. Is basically where they would invite athletic directors out to, I guess it was Oregon out. It was VCU and Nike hosted it. And so they got to meet all these uh, assistants. They hired Grant that way. They hired Shaka Smart. And just kind of one after another, they just, they hit on all of them. And then 2011, it was kind of the, just sort of the VCU went nuclear. And did the tournament every year since. And I mean, seven consecutive seasons that's that's how a, a fan page a fan base goes from just batshit crazy and now we're but having a bat- go ahead go ahead well this but you guys were batshit crazy by 13 for sure um did it get batshit crazy after the final four did you notice a noticeable like that was when it really exploded or was it was it already so, getting there in 06 07 08 so basically that that final four season you know, we had a bunch of games. We didn't sell out. Um, it, you know, it was you could still go to the games and get a seat. You could still buy a ticket game day. That season, it just happened that we had a bunch of get big games back to back to back. Basically, based on like we were in the CAA, like everyone in the CAA was from Virginia, so there was tons of rivalries. Um, and so we started selling out games, and then we went to the Final Four, and then it just exploded, and it just so happened that. Final Four, everyone wanted to come. We had the hot coach. He returned. 
But then it happened that the next year, somehow, even despite being incredibly young, we were really good. We set a program record wins, went back to the tournament, and won a game there. Should have won the next game, but kind of choked it away at the last minute to Indiana. And, and that was just kind of um, when VCU, I mean, they got smart. They cashed in. They, you know, season ticket wait list, all that stuff. And, and they just they've kept going to the tournament. And it's just built, and it's just a you know it's not a big venue, and so demand is high. Be no one in sports bars watching VCU, and this is up to really 2011 or before the tournament run. And now you, all the bars around are you know although this year they've taken a hit, but and it's just it's a different scene than even when I was in college there watching them. Would you say the percentage of season ticket holders are VCU alums versus? Just residents of Richmond. Oh man, that's a tough question. I, I'd say it's becoming less and less, um, or the percentage. I, I couldn't tell you the actual numbers, but I, I can tell you that the percentages are getting away from the alumni base because what's happened is kind of like with any popular sports team in an area, like take like Yankee Stadium, the Yankees is with a hot ticket like that. Sort of the corporate influence has creeped in, and basically. Right. Yeah. They're buying big bunches of them. My dad's an old school Ram. He's a season ticket holder. He's bitching and complaining about his seats getting worse and getting more expensive. And that that sort of thing is happening because people just want to go there and companies want to go there. They want to like give tickets to people. And so it's it's And then you got the secondary market working against you too, though. In yeah, that in that sense. Well, it's just everything's everything's changing and it's gonna be an interesting see what happens now <laughs> that i mean this is our first bit of struggles what happens uh to the corporate sort of folks um what happens with the prices but it's been really interesting to watch but but that's the thing richmond virginia we have nothing we have no pro sports teams in virginia i mean with the and it's a pretty big market i mean for for no you know i guess you have you for like a triple a is, is the braves triple a team there we have actually, we used to have the Braves, but they moved to Gwinnett, Georgia. Um, we had them for forever. I mean, I used to watch like David Justice and all those guys back in the day when they're my, in the minors. But we have the the Giants, double uh, A team, I believe it is, which the Richmond Flying Squirrels. Oh, I fuck with that. I'm into that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're pretty fun. They do a good job. They just have a shit show, basically. That's really, really cool. But so I'm, I'm intrigued by – so it's it's interesting you talked about the corporate element because one of the things that I was going to say about the VCU fan base that has been um, unique to say the least is and – I, and I believe it was uh, maybe Luke Wynn who was a sports writer for uh, Sports Illustrated. I can't recall exactly who it was, but somebody characterized the VCU fan base and a, and a game at VCU as being more comparable to a – um, European soccer match of like, you know, a, not even like maybe like a huge European team, but like it has this almost cult following a sort of fanaticism. And the school is known for its, you know, it's an urban campus. It's a really good art school from what I know about it. So it has kind of a creative, like different vibe. And if you watch the band and just the way they do things, it's, it's genuinely a, it's a quirkier, uh, very just kind of, uh, it's a different type of thing, and that's what I always admired about it. And I'm curious how their success, uh, you know, or sustained success, and now, and you know, you talk about the sort of creeping corporate influence of of the of Richmond, which has, I know, you know, some major Fortune 500 companies there, and it doesn't surprise me since that's the only game in town. Has that is there 
sort of an underbelly of fans who are concerned that that is taking away a little bit from that kind of uh, really unique kind of grassroots VCU experience? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I, I do think um, some, some folks have talked about that. I know that's something I've talked about. Uh, the, the thing is, you know, with the game, and so that's it's always going to be pretty pretty live like that. But um, they changed, like, for example, they changed the student ticketing where the students have, because basically students weren't claiming tickets. I don't know if they didn't think they couldn't get in or what because of the sellouts. But there's less students than used to be there. I feel like that, that's gone less and less and less. Basically, if students don't claim a certain amount of tickets, those tickets and they sell them, which is pretty smart. You know, I mean, they got to make money. Um, but the, I think the atmosphere has changed, especially earlier in the season. It did feel more corporate, but I, I feel like later in the season, that sort of old school VCU chip on the shoulder, it's almost like a desperation is creeping back in and it's getting a little rowdier. But I do think over the years they've lost, it's it's definitely lost a bit of that sort of um, like kind of terror dome vitriol that it had um, even before they used to sell out games. I feel like I went to games before it sold out and it was crazier than it is now. And I think a lot of that is, you know, these new new students, um, kind of fair weather fans, less less of a diehard element than it used to be. But I think that I think this season might sort of shake some of those off and and kind of get it back to how it used and to be. Would you say though that it's true that it's got it's like a kind of a quirkier, creative, like different type of vibe? No. <laughs> or is that just my outside perspective? It, it just think, seems like different. I will. I think the. Of a uh, reason for that, I would say, is the band. Um, one, they're just really talented. We have a really good art school, um, and I mean, not the. I mean, the art school is good, but it, the art students don't come to the game except for me. I was like the only art student probably ever <laughs> went to the game. Um, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, VCU is a huge school. Um, it's one of the, it's basically VCU and Mason are the two biggest schools in Virginia. It's, VCU is like thirty two, thirty three thousand, depending on the year. Um, wow. But it's yeah, it's the creativity comes from the band. Um, and it, we used to have this great, um, band director that everyone knew of. Basically he was a former male stripper. Just, yes, that's right. I've heard about this guy. Is he not, is he not there anymore? Not there. He had a contract dispute with the AD and this is his second year. Not there. Although he is a killer. Killer. It is a big issue. And a lot of fans are still pissed about it. Um, I mean, he, years um i mean our ad hasn't been there all that long and so and i will say the band the band director um i know him he actually you know we i put together a team for that basketball tournament thing and we actually he's he's been there for us um but he's a he's a character i mean i can understand how he had to be hard to work with on the financial end um for the athletic director especially the more press you get the harder you know you are probably yeah yeah well he was like an actual he was like an actual character for you guys for sure oh a thousand percent and people loved him yeah it still sounds good but i will say a lot of the sort of creativity is gone like you know like they would bring out like they played like when wrecking ball was a popular song they would play they play all these new songs but they have like they had like a Miley Cyrus impersonator who would come out in the middle. <laughs> you know, they just were creative, and, and some of it was corny. But like, they knew what they were gonna do. But but that's changed. They lost him. He's actually a firefighter, so he's at the games, sort of <laughs> as a EMS sort of worker. But um, wow, that's so. crazy. 
but but yeah, it's 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 definitely you know evolving in an interesting way. Is so my favorite. So I, I went to the A10 tournament for like three or four years in a row, and. Yeah kind of fell in love with VCU just because the fan base was so rabid and the chants were awesome. And um, this guy, the band was sick. It was just, it was just a fun team to root you for. You don't want to go. Yeah. So that, was, that, that, that sticks in my head. That haunts me to this day. hundred percent, man. And it's like, it, it was that all the band or is that just like, was that organic through the fan well, base? Like how did I that think, all start? So basically the, the band really led a lot of that craziness and I do think um, credit to the, the, the guy, Ryan Capacci, um, he did a good job of kind of keeping it new. But he also, I mean, he basically turned the band, which was pretty much students or all students, into just a, a in section. They wouldn't just play. I mean, they would get insane at the games and had a lot of fun with it. And I think uh, the fans really sort of um, played off that and it worked well. And it's, it's honestly, it's been a bit different um, without them. All right, so before we get into this year's struggling VCU team, and I, I hate to do this for those of you who are here for you know just the sort of pure hoop stock, but I got to ask, because VCU is an extremely online fan base. There, I feel like you know, once upon a time, I, I said like one complimentary thing about VCU, and I got like 75 retweets and 25 followers in five minutes. And ever since, I've sort of been in and out of the VCU Twitter sphere. But there's two people over those last couple of years who really come to mind, other than yourself. And I want to get your opinion on them because I know that many of our listeners are active in the Atlantic 10 Twitter world. And uh, first one is, of course, VCU Pav. Now, for those who don't know him, Pav sports a pair of large ram's horns uh to every game is a big beard i believe he sits sort of like right behind the hoop or right behind the bench he is hard to miss he he finds any comment or any conversation about vcu basketball and jumps right in and his level of earnest fandom is yeah frankly is both something i admire and a little bit think you know i kind of scoff at because it's like so self-serious but I want to get a sense of, uh, you know, Pav's, uh, Pav's identity in the, in the, in, in, as far as VCU fans are concerned, and like sort of, you know, how he fits into to this whole fan culture. Sure. Well, so basically, um, he was a student manager back when Jeff Capel, maybe even Mac McCarthy, um, the, back in the early 2000s. And so that's, I think, when he kind of caught the fever and obviously – and then he, I don't know when he got the Ram horns and he was just a fan, but, you know, he's just a very passionate, super um, VCU fan who's very positive on the VCU side. And, you know, when you're like a large man that wears Ram horns and you're at every game, because he would go to every game. Home and away. He was, yeah, he was in, he was 100% in Amherst when I was at yeah. the VCU in the 2014 game. I was, he was definitely there. I think basically, you know, he, you know, he's met people, he's made connections, he's, I think donors hook him up and all that stuff. He's just, he's a staple, um, and he is in, insanely passionate, as you've discovered. I, I will say, so his name is Chris. Chris, um, we, we call him Pav because he's, he's like an opera singer. Um, nice. 
Wow. He's an interesting guy. Um, I will say he's actually a good guy, but there is a side to him. And this is just being honest. There's a side to him that's just like, where does, you know, like it, it almost feels like Pav killed Chris, you know? And actually, <laughs> I, I will that's say this. That, that's why I don't, by the way, that's right there. That Pav killed Chris is why I don't put my real name on this show because Sage killed blank would absolutely be something someone said and it would alternately be accurate and kind of devastate me. But carry on. <laughs> but I will say, here's, here's just a... Like, I, feel like, I feel like I'm Pav with more sadness, but carry on. Here's an example of it. So I started with a friend of mine when, when VCU entered the Atlantic 10. We started A10 Talk. I was like, how is there no Atlantic 10 website? Like this, what kind of, same way we started VCU Ramnation is like, how is oh, there- you started A10 Talk? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a kid at Davidson. Okay. So that kid, his, um, his name is Grant Lebeds. Him and another Grant, they had started another site like Hoop 10 Harbor. And they were just really attacking it. And I was like, damn, these kids are like, they were getting all these writers and stuff. And I was like, these kids are like really hustling. And I was like, you know what? Because it was hard. I mean, we were yeah, hard, right. hard to maintain two sites for sure. Write some stuff. But, you know, when you're not making money off a site, it's hard yeah. to be like, you're a student, which they are. Um, it's hard to really dedicate time. And I'm, you know, I have a business of kids. We've got like a, because my buddy Matt Moore, he's a really good sort of IT guy and makes good looking websites. So I was like, let's hit these guys up. Let's just merge with them. That was smart. And, um, you know, because we have, obviously, we, we, we know how to grow sites and we know how to monetize it and, and they're passionate. And But yeah, but anywho, um, back to my story. Um, so when I started that and I would tweet from that back in the day, I used to tweet from it all the time. I barely do now. I need to. But um, he would... Uh, like attack it and he would say like things like i was trying too hard to not be biased but really like i don't give a shit like i say on twitter either through if i'm tweeting through a10 talk if i'm writing or whatever i say what i mean i'm not trying to do anything and so he would he has this like extreme vcu passion where he would have to fight anything that guys i just want to jump in here this sounds eerily – before you finish, I just have to give context. This sounds eerily similar to one BT UMass Hoops, uh, <laughs> now BT La Familia. So just to give you a little context, Matt, and we're getting deep into the A10 Twitter world here, but there's a guy, BT – I don't need to put his name out there. He's a good guy, but he was – is a former manager uh, during the Cal- Calipari years. Uh, worked on staff maybe as like an academic advisor or grad assistant, something like that, and was is really close with basically Cal and like Cal's sort of disciples like Bruiser Flint who succeeded him and then Kellogg later on. And when um, when Bamford, our athletic director, let go of um, let go of Kellogg in the offseason, BT just completely abandoned the program like loved umass basketball to like his his handle was like bt umass hoops changed it gone and any time in the past where i would be critical or like another hardcore fan would be critical of umass he would 
jump on it like it was, you know, the, the uh, you know, a sports information director or something and treat it like as if it was like a personal attack on the brand and bad for recruiting and all this stuff. So I think like 100 percent, that's like not the style of fandom I ever want to want to be associated with because I, I still want to be like a human being and see things as they are, you know, uh, and that's where I set, say that thing about the self-awareness factor. But carry on with your but just so eerily similar to to um, to Pat. <laughs> The thing about that situation, too, was I know him, and I've known him for years, um, and he knows me. And so when he would attack A-10 Talk, when it was just me and my friend Matt, who he knows, I mean, their kids were basically, they were their wives were both pregnant at the same time. They had their babies basically in the same hall. Um, he was attacking us, and I'm just like, Jesus, man. I get it. Like you're trying to defend VCU, but you know me. you're supposed to be like a friend of mine. Like <laughs> passion for VCU is so insane that you would attack and try to discredit a friend, you know? And so um, I, I basically, I forget something happened this year. I ended up kind of calling him out on that situation. I just kind of lit into him, but to his credit, apologize and was adult about it. And we worked it out. And, you know, we're cool. And he, he's, he's a legit good guy. Um, sometimes his fandom, you know, obviously goes overboard, especially if you're – but I will say, like, even if you're an opponent, if you actually meet him at a bar and talk to him, he's a good dude. He's, he is an actual good guy, as hard as it may be to believe on Twitter. No, no. I actually think, Pabs, the, the way you characterize him is precisely how he appears from afar. Um, now, the second fan, because – and this one, I think, is alienated – this one seems to frankly run counter to a lot of the VCU fan base in that forget the just abject homerism that happens. There's fans in all fan bases, but this individual, it seems to be devoid of any sort of online irony or just kind of like catching of the joke and yet goes wildly provocative all the time in terms of just provoking like trolling almost but it's unclear if she knows she's doing it and that and that runs counter to most of your fan base and that is vcu i don't i forget her handle but tori vcu tori right where does yes. tori fit in the um she seems a little more politically conservative than many of the VCU oh, fans. Sure. She, she seems just a, a like a like a an outlier in VCU nation, but she's like managed to, she, she tweeted so, the other day, somebody, some Bona fan made a modest joke about Tori and got like 250 likes from everyone in the Atlantic 10 on Twitter. Like I've never seen a reaction like that. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. She, interesting. She's an interesting one. Um, I've met her in person. Our, our politics are pretty, pretty much run opposite of each other. And so, you know, we have rough time with that. I follow her. She follows me. We're cordial. Like, you know, sometimes I'm like, I bet she hates me. Because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I get kind of real. I'm not, I don't trash players and stuff, but I'll, I'll say, you know, our defense is terrible. Here is why. Here's the percentage. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Here's the history. And she doesn't like that. But yeah, it's she's an interesting one. Honestly, I don't like the way she goes after other people's fans. It's I think it's a bad look for VCU. A lot of I mean, a lot of people, a lot of VCU fans hate it. They've muted her or blocked her. Um, 
it's it's tough. I, I met her in person and like she's been nice to me and like I don't I don't roll like that, like how she attacks people. It's just rough. I mean honestly I feel like if you pulled most of these new people, like, there's a diehard crew that would probably like what she's doing. Um a lot of people are just like, God, just need to chill with that, you know, and it's I feel like she's right. very I feel like he's definitely an outlier. Um, in terms of sort of VCU. So, so now that we're okay, we've talked about VC Twitter. We're gonna, I want to get to the team, but I want to talk about in terms of the team struggling right now. Um, how that is? You, you've recently gone. You've blocked. You've gone um, private on Twitter, which uh, surprised me. And I'm wondering, and this is a perfect segue into VCU's struggles this year. Has your decision to go private, you were a pretty public voice in the Atlantic 10 Twitter world. Has your decision to go private been a function of the negativity surround or, or just sentiment surrounding the team's struggles this year and you're, you're just kind of like no longer wanting to deal with it? Or is it, is it, does it predate that? Well, I think it's, you know, Twitter's annoying to all of us, you know. Um, but basically this year in particular, I mean, there's – you know, sort of talking about like Pav and Tori, this, like I, fans, the most fans I have blocked are VCU fans because there's a group of people that like, if you say anything, if I'm negative, you know, I'm being constructive to you. I mean, and so for me, I'm just like, you know what? Like I make some money off this shirt, but I don't need my Twitter account. Like I'm not, like some, you know, I own businesses. I'm not trying to be like a sportscaster. And so I just kind of, for me, I was just like, you know what? This is, I don't need this stress. I, you know, I got like kids to feed and other issues. I don't need to be attacked by like VCU fans of all people because I'm like our two point defense is garbage. Um, and <laughs> in a way. So that's why I went private. Um, but yeah, it's been, and then also to Dayton, Dayton fans are same way. Um, they're Dayton VCU fans are like identical, honestly. And yeah, it's it's been an interesting year. And and if you have to say, um, people will just hammer you. And so I was like, you know what? Like, I don't need. I'm just gonna like close my circle. This is Twitter. Basically, Twitter got like not fun for me. And so. <laughs> I don't need to hear from all these a-holes. Like, I'm just going to, like, talk to the people I want to talk to, and I'll do it Oh, I'm Sage, real quick. I am so much, like, at that Twitter right now where it's like – and I'm, I'm sure, Matt, like, you – I mean, you own businesses, so it's like at, at some point you have to be a little bit concerned that, that somebody's going to call out, like, your business and say, like, don't buy from these people or something, like, along those lines if – if your Twitter is public and you're just saying somewhat negative things about VCU, it's like, is that part of the reasoning? Cause I, I can totally see that. Well, that's not, I really could care less. My people, who come <laughs> to, people who come to my store, like I own stores that are like, in like if I'm being real, they're pretty like, they're very Richmond. They're pretty like hipster stores. These people don't give a shit about VCU basketball. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's good. Enough. <laughs> care less. Although shout out to, what is it? It's Addison clothing store called uh, Addison. It's like vintage, but we sell all our cool stuff. Check it out. You'll check out our Instagram feed. You'll 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 get a, an idea. And then I'm opening another store. Uh, basically, 
next month. So it's going to be a serious bit of March Madness for me. This Hell year. yeah. All right. Well, check out the store, guys, because uh, we support. Anyway. Um, all right. So let, let's talk about VCU struggles. The way I'm seeing it from afar, I've watched a couple of VCU games and I've, I've obviously followed what's going on. And it seems to me like every time. So first of all, you guys had by A-10 standards, even in this week A-10, a very favorable conference schedule. So in terms of who you get on the road and who you get at home and those sorts of things. And so it seems as if, you know, with, with a weaker conference schedule, you know, not a weaker conference schedule, but you have a lot of teams at home and a pretty, pretty favorable schedule. Each time you lose early in the season and you were like, you know, I'm making this up, you know, precisely, but when you were sort of six and four or, you know, three and two, I was kind of just like, well, they're going to get their shit together just because of that conference slate and they're going to somehow finish 12 and six or whatever. And each time I was like, all right, well, they still have a lock on a top four because, you know, look, they just have like GW on the road or whatever. And then each time you guys just would keep choking. And in the last two games, I think you were seven and five entering and you had Davidson at home and they're good, but Davidson shouldn't beat you guys at home. Even, you know, basically even this year from a talent perspective, and then you had GW on the road. So I'm like, okay. They're going to go nine and they're going to get to nine and five and solidify. And, and even though it's been a down year, they're going to solidify like a fourth place finish. And you lost both those. And so now I'm looking at this team from afar and I don't think I've actually seen you guys play since the blowout against um, Dayton, maybe one other time since. But I've obviously been following along and I'm saying, and I knew that was an aberration. I mean, like David's, D- Dayton went just bonkers. Yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't miss, and that happens. But I'm looking, and I'm like, they just lost at GW by 24, and that yeah. is not a good GW team. And granted, we just down lost 30. I would like to point out we were down 30 in that game. And and I'm sitting there saying, okay, and I've talked about this a lot in this show where I'm saying, you know, it's very hard for teams in mid to late February in particular to maintain that intensity level, particularly when they don't, you know, a strong, a high level intensity when they don't have much to play for. And when I saw that loss, my first reaction was, okay, they've mailed it in. My second reaction was shit. Couldn't they have done that? That that's such a low point. And frankly, a low point from afar, it appears for your program more broadly that I was like, fuck, they can't even get lower than that. And now here they are. They're going to be like, okay, well, now we're going to exercise some demons against the UMass team of five scholarship players on Wednesday because it can't, <laughs> it can't get lower than that. So I wish you could have just put that off for, for a, you know, another couple of days and kind of had a win there and then done your inconsistent thing again and lost to us because I think we actually still are playing with the energy level that if we caught a team like you guys at home on a, you know, after a win where they were maybe sluggish, we could have actually pulled one off. And now I'm just like, shit. But my question is, how did it get to this point is my assessment sort of, you know, accurate from afar? Fill, sort of fill in the details of what I was sort of breaking down from a broader outsider perspective and kind of tell me where I hit, where I missed, and, and where you guys are as a team right now. Yeah, you, well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you <laughs> talked about the low point, the program low point. I mean, this is – I'm a huge Ken Palm guy, and this is the lowest rated team we've had in, like – since pre-2002, pre-Ken Palm. Um, our last coach that – performed this bad, resigned that year. Basically, 
the, the it's been the, the most maddening season to watch because in our early losses we had a brutal schedule. You know, Virginia, yeah. Michigan, Michigan, yep, the Seton Hall. And here's the thing: is we, you know, you don't expect a team with a new coach and all these new players to beat those teams. But the reality is, we were we were hanging with Virginia. Um, we we should have beaten Michigan and Texas. We led yeah. both of them with like two minutes to go. Seton Hall blew our doors off, and basically, I was a home game for them. But it was like, you know, we had these losses, but you're like, all right, this is so many new pieces. They're going to put it together. Thing now is because I, I I love to compare the numbers, and I did this in our forum. I compared our non-conference numbers in our conference numbers. We've been conference. We've regressed. And so I used to think that that early season play was, I was like, all right, that's sort of, um, that's probably, you know, you think you start from there is your starting point. You're like, I'm like, okay, maybe that's kind of like the mid level, you know, maybe, but now I'm like that we might've peaked early um, because losing by trailing it like a sub 200 GW team by 30 points, it gets no worse than that. How yeah. does that happen? Because, I mean, like, we had five players and played bad against them and only lost by, like, 11. And granted, it was at home, but, like, I, I was just looking at that score because, you know, I watched the GW game, and they're they're not very good. And I'm just saying, how does VCU only – it's one thing to give up 80, I understand, if you're not defending or whatever, but, like, how do you only score 56 against that GW team? It's been the scary thing is VCU – um, early, early in the season, the sort of word on VCU was like, these guys are horrible defensively, but man, this is the best VCU offense we've seen in a while. Because they were a 40 point, or 40% three-point shooting team throughout, throughout basically most of the non-conference. VCU is ranked in offensive efficiency in the Atlantic 10. So that's the problem. I mean, we, we then we're a bad defensive team, team all season. Now what we're discovering is, we suck on offense. We're worse offensively in conference than we are on D. We scored 63 against Davidson, 56 against GW. I mean, it's just I guess the teams are just figuring, all right, just guard Tillman, pack the paint, and then make someone else beat you. And then uh, it's, it's been very interesting. I've reached out to so many people. I've reached out to coaches. Um, I've reached out to players like – former players of ECU and some legends here. And I've talked to them and cause in my mind, I'm like, the coaches are underachieving. I still believe that personally. Um, but I've talked to some players that are just like players we have just are, they're not as good. <laughs> they're not that good. Um, and then I've, you know, people have told me that they're kind of a me over we kind of team. A lot of guys trying to get theirs, not really concerned with winning. Um, and you can kind of see that. Um, basically in their body language if they're not hitting shots. But it's maddening. I mean, honestly, you know, it's in, I, I tried to make a rallying post about, like, when you looked at the schedule, you're like, hey, this is four sub-200 teams and we get Bonaventure at our place. That could be a five-game win streak. And then, sure enough, what do we do? So, yeah, I, I mean, we could win all of these next ones or we could lose all of them. And it's just kind of, I think a lot of Ram fans are, We'll take it game by game and just, you know, have fun at the pre and the post game. And, you know, we'll see you next season kind of deal. Matt, so yeah. I'm I'm looking at some of the 
Ken Palm numbers right now. And it's, it's, you know, fairly startling when you see a team that's playing with like the, the second or the, uh, actually the second, yeah, the second most tempo and their bottom two, second most tempo and bottom two in turnover percentage. So that's kind of a red Cal, flag. Is that, is that in the league or na- that's not nationally, right? Con- conf- yeah. Conference okay. only I'm, I'm looking at right now. And so it, 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 like what are, I guess my overall question is what are the thoughts on Mike Rhodes and like I feel like what you just said where players are looking out for themselves they're looking out for their own numbers it, like some of that comes down to coaching so you know what is the what is the overall here. feeling on on your head coach right now and and let's just give by the way real quickly just give our fans uh so, some who who may not follow VCU super closely Mike Rhodes is a first year head coach Will Wade who was there for two seasons departed and is now at LSU. Mike Rhodes is a longtime Shaka assistant who prior to that was, I believe, a D3 head coach at Powerhouse Randolph-Macon. And then he uh, was at Rice uh, as a very successful head coach at Rice for like two or three years. And and, and I've heard great things about him, by the way. And UMass, Bamford absolutely would have tried to get him if Will Wade hadn't left. I've heard from multiple sources. Uh, and so, and I think Bamford, you know, that one might have been one of the first guy he called. So he is very well regarded in the profession. Just and I just wanted to, you know, give people context and who he was. But that being said, uh, let us know what your thoughts are on him thus far. Well, for starters, I think he's a great guy. I think um, when when we hired him, so you know, he was a he was the associate head coach on our Final Four team and just sort of all that stuff. He's a really good guy, and I think Ram fans, after losing Capel, after losing Grant, after losing Shaka, after losing Wade. Our, the sort of the missing link for us was, can we find a guy who can stay here? And he's a guy with kids in the area. We all genuinely believe, and I asked him point blank at his press conference because he said, you know, the road ends here. He said it to his parents. Um, and I was like, what does that mean? You know, I, I just told him, I was like, flat out. Ram fans are like, you know, we're just tired of seeing our coaches leave. And he said, this is it. You know, this is where I want to be. This is home. My kids are here. You know, I'm not taking them out of school again. All of that. Games, you can see. He's not a guy who throws players under the bus. He doesn't want to throw anyone under the bus. He's a really good guy. My concern with him now and my what my concern was when he came here was just looking at the numbers. I mean, he season at Rice. Sure, he went for a complete rebuild there, and that's a, a, a really tough place to win at. And he did win 23 games there last year for them. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like Bill Wade's numbers in his two years at Chattanooga and how, how quickly he made them, you know, took them from horrible to really tough. The Rice stuff, I, I wasn't quite as sold on, on Rhodes. And then when, you know, all I have is numbers to, to line up and you're like, you look at Rhodes' sample and you're like, man, this and coach defense, like, all of his defenses have just been horrible. Um, and so Interesting. How many years was he at Rice again? Sorry, I missed that. He was there for three years. And, I'm, so and I'm, there's Bennett, we're going to have to edit this, but I, every time, for whatever reason, every time you say something, I can't hear the number of years. How many? Three years. Three years. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, he was there for three years. I like him. I think he's a good guy, and 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 I think he does deserve time. I mean, you're bringing in people last minute. Um, it, it's tough, and we're they they are a pretty young team, definitely young, younger and experienced. 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm rooting for him. I'm, I'm, as a numbers guy, I'm very worried. Um, I'm also worried because they're not numbers guys on this staff, and they don't spell things out for you. They don't really comfort you like Will Wade did. Um, he would spell it all out. Here's what's wrong. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And Rhodes isn't that guy, and it concerns me, but, you know, he's he's going to have a few years to sort of prove me wrong. Um, and I, and I, want, I want him to win because he's – he deserves it. He's a great guy. Well, how what long are, does – sorry, Cal. How long does he have? Because I look at your roster and, you know, I kind of just assumed, okay, it's a bridge year between coaches and, you know, they'll be really good again next year. They're VCU. But then I realized Tillman's a senior. The kid Chris Lane um, from Longwood, the transfer, he's a senior. And then don't you have a guard, a, a top guard who's also a senior? It's not as if this team is wildly inexperienced, right? Right. So we lose Tillman, which is the huge loss. Um, we, we lose Johnny Williams. He's our starting point guard. Although right. he, he's never really, he's having a good year as sort of a true point guard. He's got a good assist rate, but he's not a scorer. Um, a lot of Ram fans really struggle with him, but you know, I got his back. He's stuck through three coaches. Um, this guy's been I, there since like 2008. It feels like a good guy. I mean, he was a, he was a highly re- rated player out of high school but he just it never quite happened at this level but we lose Tillman we lose Williams and we do we do lose Lane um but we don't play Lane a ton I think obviously the big loss there is Tillman um I think we'll massively upgrade um over Williams we've got this kid Marcus Evans who I mean there's you know he's he followed Rhodes from Rice to VCU which I mean you can be like whoa whatever this kid's a stud right Sat out a year, sitting my, out. I mean, he had put, put great numbers, but my thing with him is Kansas and Arizona wanted him, and we got him. So if, if he's good enough for Bill Self and, and John Miller, then I'm pretty stoked that we got him. Wait, he went to Rice over Kansas and Arizona? So he was not. He was under-recruited out of high school. He's from Cape Henry, which is in the, the beach area of Virginia. And he was just kind of an under-recruited player. He went to Rice – Average 21 his freshman year, 19 his sophomore year. But these were a pretty efficient scoring, too. And when Rhodes left, um, Kansas and Arizona were both recruiting him to transfer to their program. Wow. So Got, he ended it. Up, Got it. He's going to be a baller. And, I mean, I know, I know people that see these guys on the daily. He's our best player by far right now. And so we're going to upgrade there. The, the question will be Tillman. Um, I do think we – Tillman's a really awesome rebounder and scorer. He's not a good defender. I think that gonna, that's going to be an interesting position to watch. But, yeah, I mean, we definitely lose some stuff. But, you know, everyone does. You know, Aldridge, these guys. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, big, big year for you guys next year then. We're uh... – I mean, if you think you're excited for next year and getting this one over with, we – don't lose we lose one player who's sort of like a you know a fine role player senior and we bring in four transfers who are sitting out um and all of the and we were literally playing five scholarship players right now and so i think for you guys there's at least hope that you get into for the conference tournament there's a ton of vcu fans there maybe rhode island gets bounced early whatever happens happens you at least have a roster of yeah, we Division have, One basketball players on scholarship who could hypothetically win three games in a row uh, or there's four a, games in a row. However, unlikely. We literally 
don't have enough players to field a team beyond. We just brought up a football player, uh, a back, a third string quarterback on our football team, redshirt junior, and he played like he subbed into the game like nine times. Davidson. So he played. Tw- he played twelve minutes. Excited for next year. Um, you know, we, you, you're making up. We we are far more excited, and I think the difference is with us. We've actually been wildly encouraged with what appears from afar like a disastrous season because if you're watching us and you're seeing us hang around and lose to Rhode Island by two and VCU by five, uh, excuse me, and Dayton, or excuse me, Davidson on the road by five, when we have five scholarship guys, it's a, it's a very different, you know, way of approaching a first year coach. And, and for us, we're just all pretty much thrilled about it. Although we're of course ready to get ready for next season. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to ask about the recruiting because oh, you because guys you guys. I was just no, going to say, you guys. So, uh, go go, one of my, go ahead, Matt. And coaching is with you guys this year. Your assistant, Rasheen Davis, get to know him. He's a great guy, and he's a he's a really good coach. So y'all y'all need to get to know him while he's in town. Yeah, that's great. I actually would love to get to know him a little bit more. But um, Matt, real quick about uh, with, with recruiting, I was looking at your 2018 uh, commits. You got a couple. It's 20, and this is strictly through 24 seven sports, which is the thing I rely on the most. Um, but you got a couple unranked guys. One of them is at a Fork Union military, which is like an absolute powerhouse from what I know. Uh, but you know, you're trying to replace Tillman, who's your big guy. He's six eight, um, six you know maybe seven feet with the afro, but is there is is Rhodes kind of intent on going with the Shaka route where it's Here. you know you don't have a ton of big guys inside it's it's a it's a lot more uh, pace and space with with pressing because I noticed like you know your two big guys coming in next year are both guards slash combo guards um, talk about you know recruiting going forward and if you're at all concerned with Rhodes's ability to get good talent into uh, Richmond. Well, the tr- the tricky thing is is I I prefer the sort of Will Wade style um, of you know having bigs um, playing some traditional sort of big man basketball. But the reality is is when we had Shock and we did that style, we were incredibly successful. I mean, we had teams, you know, we were ranked back in those days, and so this is what worked. And so I'm not opposed to them sort of. Also, Rhodes, um, I mean, he had no time to recruit this this past off season, but. I mean, he's the guy who found Briante Weber. I believe he was the guy who brought in Mo Alley Cox. Um, we got he's he's also bringing in. Um, he recruited to Rice this kid named Corey Douglas. Yeah, he's, at, he's a big man. He's at Tallahassee. He went JUCO instead of just transferring and sitting out. Um, but yeah, I'm. I've got a good friend who's who's heavily involved in recruiting. I've heard good things about PJ Bird and Vince Williams. Not so much about the Curry kid. Um, and my, my, my recruiting friends have been pretty spot on in the past. So um, that he'll have to be a surprise, but um, yeah, I mean, they're going to, I think they want sort of positionless basketball um, type of players. And that's kind of what we were doing in a way um, sort of under Shaka. So I'm to, to, to get his guys in and I'm looking forward to seeing it. I mean, if you can come close to sort of doing what, what he did with Shaka, we'll, we'll be in good shape. So, Style-wise right now, you said they want to move toward a little more of the Shaka style. When I think of Shaka, yeah, I think of the positionless basketball, but that's a buzzword that, frankly, everybody's throwing around now. 
Right. With Chuck, I, I think it, it was so, and even to some degree with Will Wade, I, I think it was so much defined by kind of that havoc, unique pressing style. Are you saying 100%. that Rhodes wants to move back towards that and isn't now because of personnel? Or are you saying that he wants to do something else entirely and uh, this year has had to scrap plans for it? Yeah, he's. I think he's trying to build a culture. Um, we're pressing more than any VCU fan honestly wants to see right now. Um, I mean, get, we give up so much on, on the back end of these presses, but I think he's he's trying to take sort of these Will Wade guys who maybe aren't built for it, and he wants to um, ready for that sort of style. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's what he wants to do. Is he wants to find we don't we don't have a havoc wreaker. I mean, Briante Weber led the country like three years in a row in steals, and he's he's basically the best defensive <laughs> heels artist in college basketball history. Period. One of my all-time favorite players in the history of the A-10. For me, watching it, like Briante yeah, great, was great talent. So great talent. Awesome. him him tearing his ACL his senior year was like actually devastating to me as like a fan. It was brutal. Enough. It's the only year we ever won it too. So yeah, sense. I was there. He was like jumping around with uh, with like a cat with uh, his brace on at the end. It was amazing. That's basically what he wants to get towards. He's just got to find guys who can do that. And, and obviously he wants to sort of get these guys ready. And we, we're not, you're not going to see us out there in the one, three, one and, you know, X and no guys to death. We, they want to like get up and down obviously. And they, they want to do basically, yeah, exactly what Shaka did. And are you saying that Wade, cause Wade was there for so short. It was like a blink of an eye. It almost feels like he was there only there for one season. Um, what, what what was Wade's style? And I guess now that it's Wade's guys, I mean it's a, it's just a tricky situation because yet you, you know these some of these guys have played for three coaches, but the core group is are Will Wade's recruits. And you were saying that he was going away from Havoc and toward a, a more like what style. And then as a result of that, um, is it does it feel a little bit like this VCU team just lacks an identity? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do think so. I mean. Like, I mean, our identity, you know, everyone, when you think of VCU, you think of Havoc, but we do not turn teams over. <laughs> we're, we're very bad at it, actually. And, and, but, you know, not for a lack of trying. I mean, we're not like we used to because Rhodes knows he can't, he doesn't have the guys for it, but we're trying uh, a bit of that. And yeah, Wade, Wade wasn't into that. He, he liked to do a little bit of pressing, but more like sort of full court zone stuff, you know, when, drop into he he was he would mix up the defenses a lot but i think Rhodes um he he couldn't be more of a different coach than Will Wade both in personality and sort of um on the x's and o's side and what he wants to do and so Wade obviously wanted to build towards that he brought in Hamdi um he was recruiting bigs we 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 had we kept two of his recruits in Sean Mobley who's 69 um but he's like kind of like a point forward kind of guy and Marcus Santos Silva, but also Wade had another top 100 six, nine guy. So he was kind of bringing in the beef and that's sort of what, what he seemed to like more. He would just pound the paint and that's not Rhodes at all. And so um, I think it's kind of, we're kind of playing through a bit of that. So it's a square pegs in, in round holes deal a bit in yeah. Richmond. That's why, like that's kind of one of my frustrations when I watch this team is I say, these guys aren't built for that, you know. Like we're long. Like let's let's attempt some zone um, or something. Um, but it's you you nailed the you nailed it right there with the sort of square peg in the round hole. That's what it's felt like for me all season. 
Well, word to the wise, uh, we right now are playing four, well, five guards and one big and literally no one else. So you might want to just, <laughs> you might want to use that length on Wednesday night because uh, now would be the time to deploy uh, that sort of a style. W- what are your expectations for the UMass game? I mean, I'm concerned. Carl Pierre scares me. Uh, I'm just waiting for him to hit like a million three. I mean, he's really good. We love him. <laughs> yeah, Pipkins. I mean, he's crushing it. Um, he's way better than I thought he was going to be. Um, I'm just worried about those guys just hitting a ton of threes on us. We struggled to defend the threes all year. We struggled to keep guys in front of us. You know, like a little five eleven guy like that. Um, who can get to the rack. I'm, I'm worried. Um, you know, I, I do in my head, I just kind of think the worst this year and I'm like, Oh, here's a team with like no scholarship players left. <laughs> and we have to go there. And I'm just waiting for the threes to fall because I mean, we I mean, really, when you look at us, both of our teams, statistically, they're kind of similar, um, except for we we're a little better inside the arc on the offensive end, but Going into this, I was I was worried about the UMass game before we lost to GW. I'm even more concerned now. Yeah, and I mean, you've never won in Amherst. It's a it's a long somehow. Even when we were disaster two years ago, and you guys were really good, you somehow lost in Amherst to a Derek Kellogg team. And I will tell you, we're much better coached uh, than we were during during the Kellogg years. That said, I, I see this as a kind of game as the kind of game where. If you can dictate tempo early, as GW did, as St. Louis did, as certain other teams that came into to our place and won, it's going to be a bit of a dead atmosphere. It'll be like 2,500, 3,000 people there. People are kind of just like, you know, it's a midweek game. We've talked about this on our show a lot, Matt, but our fan base is like pretty far from campus. So we our, our numbers on weekends are a lot higher than weekdays. But um, like I'm in New York, Bennett's in D.C., Cal's in Boston, and Amherst is, you know, there's like two hours from Boston, three hours from New York, six hours from D.C. So um, I don't expect, you know, like the atmosphere to be a factor. But I do. I just think that if VCU can dictate tempo a little at the outset and kind of not turn the ball over and hit some shots, it could be a long night for UMass. But if you let UMass keep around, the one thing that UMass team has shown is like they haven't packed it in yet i mean like given that they're playing five scholarship guys they're they're tired as hell but the calls yeah. that have impacted us on the road and our last two road games are very much games that we could have won but a couple calls just radically imp- impacts the game because you have no one to bring in i don't think those calls exist as much at home i'll, I'll just be candid like i think a10 officials are particularly bad you know They'll be worse for VCU tomorrow night as they were worse for UMass against Davidson and St. Joe's because we're on the road. And it's it's going to be important if VCU is going to win this game. They've gonna, they're going to have to take care of business early. It's either going to be – I hate to hedge here. It's either going to be like VCU exercising all their demons and winning an 82-63 to 63 game, or it's going to be UMass like somehow <laughs> – leading wire to wire and winning by like seven or eight, you know, in a, in a, like a 70 to 62 type type game. And I'm going to leave both those on the board. Uh, Cal, what do you got? And then um, Matt, what do you got? Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, with this level of talent with UMass, I just, you know, they've lost, uh, I think it's eight and nine. Um, 
or nine of 10, one of the two. But I, I just, I always just look at this team and I just think that there's no way they can get it done against a team with as much talent as VCU has, unless they just go crazy from three to Matt's point where it's like, you know, they come out and they, and they just are raining everything and establish exactly what you said, Sage, just like establishing tempo and being able to like get a lead. And then all of a sudden Pipkins is able to do what he does on the offensive end. Um, but I do think that's like a there's like a 20 25 percent chance of that actually happening. So I'll, I'll lean with a VCU win, uh, prop more than likely comfortably uh, by eight to ten points or so. Yeah, well, you guys mentioned tempo, and that's the thing I'm most interested to see with such a limited roster. I mean, Davidson and GW, they, they're they love to bring the down or the the pace down into what UMass is comfortable with. I'm curious to see because we will throw some bodies out there, even though we're not winning. We'll still go deep into the bench. Rhodes is going to run. Um, and I mean, UMass has given up 80 some points the last bunch of games. So I do think this is a team we can maybe score some points on. And I'm just curious to see how, um, how UMass um, can hold up late, basically running, run you know, for 40 minutes of action. So, I mean, if I had to bet, bet the mortgage on it, I'd probably. I'd probably say eight, uh, VCU in the high 70s, low 80 range. Because um, I do, I mean, I, I do think we're way better than we've played. I mean, um, as as much as my confidence is shot, I, I do think we can, <laughs> we're due for a win. And I'll say no, like, I, I think at some point the talent level takes over in a game like this where it's like, you know, you're rolling out a bunch of four-star recruits and you're going eight or nine deep off the bench. And it's a little different from Davidson where like Davidson might not be as talented, but they're incredibly well coached. I I, I think it's, no, it's true. I, I said Davidson, I, I had a feeling we'd play well against Davidson just because right. they don't, they have every year, they have two great players and a bunch of star D three guys, you know, right. like, and, and so they're not going to athletically like Peyton Aldridge had 38 points. I literally thought he had like 12 because I didn't know the difference between him and six other dudes. Like they're, they're just like a bunch of six, eight kids who are like from Sweden and like can hit mid range jumpers and shoot threes. And, but it's like incredibly methodical and slow VCU is a team that's going to get out and, and score. Um, so just Matt, you're saying that VCU still tries to play at a, at a fast tempo. Yeah, I mean, they, if you just look at the tempo, I mean, they're basically top sixty nationally, and so they're they're going to try. Um, whether the shots are falling, we'll see. But right, because the thing is, like Pipkins is good enough that it, it could be the kind of game where VCU wins like eighty four seventy six, and Pipkins legitimately goes for forty because he'll love playing in that. You know, like a team that doesn't defend a ton. Like he'll just go and he'll score. Like he'll he'll. Oh, he's yeah. I mean, he could like he scored. 44 against LaSalle and he scored 30 a bunch of times. Like at this point, I said it the other day, I said he should be allowed to shoot 35 times a game. Anytime he wants. And against a team like VCU where like you'll get a few more calls in Amherst, he could go for, it could be like, he'd go for like, you know, 16 for 34. (laughs) Like it could just be a wild game. Like it could just be one of these track meets that, you know, Pipkins single-handedly keeps us around for a while, and VCU ultimately has the athletes. But it could be actually be a really fun game, and it's probably worth your worth your money to bet the over, whatever it is. Agreed. Totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I definitely can see him. If he scores under 30 points, um, the way sort of we guard good guards, 
um, I'll be surprised. So he, I think, <laughs> but I think he's here. There is a lot. That's crazy. Insane. It's insane. But I, I can. Those kinds of guards have always given us trouble. Um, and so, I, and I'm curious how VCU approaches that. If they say anyone but him, or you know, just let him get twos and run him will, off the line. Will, will, and we'll, will we'll, Williams guard? Will Williams guard him? I, I would think so. I mean, he's our senior. He injured his ankle recently, and so um, I think he played sparingly in the last game. I mean, twenty some minutes. He's been. Uh, Rose has been working in uh, this guy um, Malik Crowfield a bit. He's. I think he likes him on D. So I'm curious. It'll be probably some combo of Crowfield and um, Williams, and maybe he'll throw some Isaac Van on him as well. Van's been there a while, hasn't he? year so he was a main transfer who sat out last year so this is right right maybe i remember him from maine to be honest he was a killer at maine he's he 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 crushed it at maine but he's been really struggling for us like really struggling and and he's a very high volume guy so it's taking down the offense a little bit that means he'll score don't worry that means he'll score like 36 against us and like have a career high and you know break out for for life now do you have any questions for us about our program because i'm sure a lot of ecu people will listen to this and if and if there's anything you know and that's in many ways why we i wanted to get you on for longer because i just you know i'm yeah. playing to the the audience because i know a lot of you guys will listen and i wanted to let you speak about your program but is there any questions you have for us about umass or, or anything like that well I, I was curious how you guys felt about mccall even before you got him especially I mean, he was like, had Wade. He was Wade's replacement, so they, I mean, they had the same sample basically. How did you feel about that hire, and and how are you feeling now? Um, you know, so so when he first got hired, if if you don't recall, you may not recall, but um, Pat Kelsey was hired, and then spurned us at the altar. Um, he literally half an hour before the press conference, Pat Kelsey of Winthrop had a change of heart and we never heard from him again. So there was two coaching searches in the off season. And so when, and, and I liked the Kelsey hire. And so when McCall was first hired, I was, uh, I don't want to say underwhelmed. I wasn't like, Oh, this is a bad hire. It wasn't like a, a Steve Lapis type deal. But it was it was okay. I don't yeah. Well, you know, I was just kind of eh, like we'll see. And yeah. you know, when he first came in, he was um he was very very kind of generic in his presentation at first. I, I was just like, this guy feels a little Pollyanna-ish. It was a little corny. It just it just felt a little disingenuous. Didn't feel like it would play well in new england and i was like yeah, okay like he says all the right things but it just didn't feel like it all you know it, it didn't feel it felt a little performative you know and then um i had a chance to meet him in september at an event in new york and i was like whoa i i, I really really botched that he was he's like awesome in person and not as great you know in those early you know sort and then of course like that's how it goes too it's these things happen so fast and you're just, you you know, how, what can you really take from a press conference or whatever? And I met him and I was like really impressed. And then from basically the game one, from basically the exhibition game, if you're a hoops junkie, watch his post game press conferences. 
the way he diagnoses a game with the precision with which he knows exactly what went wrong and what has to be improved on, the relentlessness with which he stresses the building of a, of a program culture, a thing that can be it, – it's just he's tirelessly re- doing it. And it's like he knows it's hard, but he's been uncompromising. And there was some concerns for us. Uh, I think there was some – talk of you know maybe things not going so well toward the end of his second season at Chattanooga and him kind of having to blow out of there quick after an amazing first season albeit with Will Wade's players and so there was some concern that was he going to lose the team you know but he just went about it so methodically and whatever lessons he you know he took from Chattanooga he clearly learned well because we have been I mean there was a point this year when we were 10 and 8 with eight players at that point and beating or really with seven players and beating Georgia and and Providence and Dayton on the road where I was and I'll say it now like I was genuinely concerned and hearing things from trustworthy sources that he could be gone after one season because of all the openings in the SEC and the blessing of this year of of basically being down to five guys is that no big time program is going to hire a guy who on paper is like 11 and 19 after one year in the A10 but if you look at sort of wins above replacement, as we talked about on our last episode, I'm telling you right now, Derek Kellogg, with this roster, maybe, maybe four wins. So the job that Matt McCall has done in a certain crazy sense, like there was a point when they were three and two in league. I was like, if he can get to nine and nine, he should absolutely be coach of the year in the A-10. He then lost uh three more guys and we were down to five and so it was just impossible but we've been I mean I speak for myself only but I've been incredibly pleased and and with four great really solid transfers sitting out and two really solid recruits coming in and basically everyone back including uh, the backcourt of Pierre and Pipkins who are you know two of the best up-and-coming guards in this league the future could not be brighter and people are just really like excited and there's a buzz that's starting around next year, you know, among, among the fans. So that's how I feel, Cal. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know how much more I can say, but like he, he sounds like Billy Donovan. I mean, he's a Billy Donovan disciple. He was there for uh, a few years and it's like everything he says, I I listen to Billy Donovan and he's one of those guys that's going to give you cliche quotes before the game and he's going to give you the real stuff after the game and he he's he's super super impressive in his post game press conferences i watch every single one of them it's it's really impressive and so anyway uh you know i, I don't want to like harp too much more because i think uh sage i think you covered most of it but i am so excited to see him next year with an actual full comp complement of talent and players that he wants just to with be there. anyone with players like with players in general, but like with players that he wants to be there, which is right. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome to watch. And another, I've got a general A ten question for you guys. Do you how much confidence do you guys have in the league? Kind of getting back to a multi bid, and not like I'll just be, a two bid league. I'll be honest, Go not ahead. high. No, yeah. I'll, no, I'll, 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 if you want to start. Stuff. Yeah, I, I'm concerned. I'll be honest. Um, I think money is such a huge thing in college sports, especially not even college sports. But really, it's it comes down to basketball and football. It, 
I just think that we've been trending slowly towards a uh, a uh, environment where we're going to look at a p- power five, power six type of uh, environment with with D one sports where the A ten is just going to struggle. And I think this. I don't. I hope this isn't the start of it. I think the A ten can still be really good. I, but there's just a there's a there's a part of me that just thinks that this is this is going to be a trend that might be ongoing. Um, with A10 teams just not being up as great as they were even five, four or five years ago, where like in 2014, the A10 got six bids into the NCAA tournament, which was, I think, the most they had had in three or five. Six. I think it was six. Yeah, it was six. And and it was like, you know, I don't know if we're ever, I don't know how we can get back to that with the current environment of the NCAA. Um, granted, there's years that are outliers, but um, that's that's just my take on it. I, so, I'd love to hear both of you guys' takes on it. So my my thoughts on this, yeah, I was thinking about this, and I've started to get really concerned about this because it's it's not that I think this year's A10 is indicative of macro trends. I think this year's A10 just happens to be really bad for just you know roster turnover and a bunch of new coaches and you know. And things that happened at St. Louis with, you know, with players getting suspended. And there's a bunch of things that, like, you know, could could have gone the other way. So it's not – but in terms of two things. One, the the proposed new transfer rules could could absolutely decimate the A-10. And, by the way, from, like, a moral sort of humanist perspective, I actually am kind of a proponent of them. I, I think it's ridiculous that a coach should be able to leave and a player should, and a player has to sit out of here. So like, but from a just a self-interested UMass fan perspective, I'm very concerned because the reality is, I mean, look, if Luan Pipkins comes back next year and he and he wins a ten player of the year, scoring as a sophomore, if he let's say he wins a ten player of the year, he's done everything he ha- he he can do in the Atlantic Ten, and if he graduates on time or whatever because he start he was uh, he sat out his freshman year. And and he wants to go home and play at Illinois or you know or yeah. basically anywhere in the country the way he's played. I mean that's if if he gets a chance to go and be the starting point guard at Kansas or or whatever. I mean, like how do you stop that? And so the Atlantic Ten, which has produced, which produces, I mean particularly in the backcourt, like a ton of these guys every year. I worry about them ultimately leaving. I, I mean, I just think that's that's a that's a concern. And then, yeah, I mean, the thing that Cal said about football stuff, the the power conferences now are also going toward a system where, I mean, I think I heard the Big Ten is now going to play twenty games, like twenty conference games, right? So, and they're not taking chances in the in the non conference. There's no reason for those. There's very little reason for those teams for you know Michigan to schedule UMass. You know, it just doesn't make sense for the teams. So. What's happening now is that I think if the Atlantic 10 teams, first of all, it's hard for them to even get good games because the A10 is in that spot where it's not like a like a Vermont or somebody who can still go and go and schedule teams because they sort of see them as a bottom feeder and if they have a spectacular win, it's great for their 12 or 30. It takes them from a 14 to a 12. With the A10, it's like like if Syracuse like Syracuse played Bonaventure this year at home, it's like. They're never going to do that again. You know, like what, what it doesn't serve them. Right. And so the A10 isn't, I'm, I'm worried they're going to not even get that many shots. And then if you don't, if you go, so now you get two shots instead of four or whatever, right? Well, 
if you get two shots and you go zero and two, that's your whole resume. So the way that conference, the, the way that scheduling works, I think UMass has a couple of advantages actually in this situation because um, the the we our athletic directors done a very nice job of getting us basketball games through the football program. So Georgia, for instance, where we got Georgia to come up here, Mark Fox was irate because <laughs> he's like, why so, do I have to so why do I have to play in Amherst? So he had three. He wouldn't. He didn't even. Matt, he didn't even show up for the post game presser because he was so pissed at his AD apparently for sending him to Amherst three days before he had Georgia Tech at home um, after an eleven day break. So the point is like we've we've got a couple of those things going. We have some regional rivalry stuff that we can tap into with with Providence and and potentially BC or UConn. But uh, you know I do have concerns just from a national landscape perspective, and and I wish. The NCAA committee, frankly, would move away from this model of thinking that, you know, your your 12 seed should be Texas with a 19 and 13 record instead of Bonaventure. I just think that's it just sucks. I mean, the whole great thing about the narrative of the NCAA tournament is a Bonaventure. I mean, for whatever you think about Bonaventure, and I know that VCU fans are not uh, fans of them, but you get the idea that I'm getting at. So I, I am concerned. I still do think, though, that the Atlantic 10 takes basketball extraordinarily seriously. And in the short term, I, th- I think they'll be OK, at least as far as, you know, sort of mid-majors go. I think they'll be as good as you can be, given the, the challenging, uh, you know, dynamics around that. Well said. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think one thing that's also worth and I'm just curious how this is going to affect everything is this, this whole FBI, uh, you know, investigation with the, uh, the NCAA and, and, and just the ripple effect and what that does to, to everything. It depends. I think how serious the feds are about getting the big fish, because look, Agreed. I think there are varying degrees of, quote unquote cheating, by the way, all of which I think should just be legal and above board to begin with. That's just my personal opinion. If a kid made 150 grand to sign it to school, God bless that kid. He deserves every nickel of it. Uh, so I think a lot of this is just bullshit, sanctimony and and just gobbledygook. But if the NCAA goes after big time power five schools, well, in the short term, that could actually help um you know, mid-major programs, particularly those that operate, quote unquote, a bit cleaner, by which I mean they're a little less shady on the recruiting front. And shady, again, I don't think it should be shady, but, you know, the reality shady is defined by uh, sort of our puritanical standards. But that's my own sort of thinking. So I think in the short term, a guy like McCall, who finds kids like Carl Pierre, who had zero Division One offers as of April and is you know, a second leading scorer on the team and a leading freshman three-pointer in the country, he'll be really good. He'll be really – it's a great spot for him because he – you know, or a Bob McKillop or these guys who sort of build their systems and do – you know, but the teams that rely on, um, you know, kind of the AAU underbelly and, you know, uh, all that that entails, that's, that's going to be a harder spot for them. But I think that could be um, sort of a saving grace for a couple years – for the mid-majors, and then they'll just find new ways to get around whatever Byzantine laws that the NCAA creates. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely agree with you, Sage. It's like, how far does the FBI want to go with this? Because 
it extends to the deepest of levels of the of the NCAA. Like, there's no doubt about it. The NCAA loves the the NCAA needs cheating. It doesn't exist without cheating. Right, exactly. So it's like they have to have it in order for them not to have like some competing league, like the D league who, if they really, if the, if the NBA really wanted to like promote the D league and offer more money to players, they could they do could that. And the NCAA tomorrow. They could sink it. They could. Add. And so it's like, there's so many competing factors here with, with, with this FBI quote unquote investigation where like, I am so convinced there's so much money involved in this thing where it's like, how, how deep does the FBI want to go? Do they want, do they really want to investigate? Uh, you know. Well, why not? Why not just arrest Phil Knight? You know what I mean at Oregon, like the head right, of Knight. That's what I mean. It's like as if, as if it doesn't go to the top, 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 top. Exactly. And, and he'll never, he'll never get arrested. No, it's like, and, and of course he has layers and layers of people. You know, plausible deniability, so he never has to see anything. He doesn't. It's not like he's interacting with AAU right, exactly. runners who like fucking. Exactly. You know, well, Matt, where where do you come down on this? I, I don't know. It's it's it it's all just above my head. I I, I saw a funny quote the other day that it was basically like gonna hit so many schools that you could have Middle Tennessee as the number two seed in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> no yeah, chance. That, and it's well, struggling, I, it, struggling A ten. I'll I'll take any help we can get. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, it is annoying. Um, you know to. I definitely am. I talked to some people in recruiting and going on and, you know, you hate to, to see the bad guys kind of get ahead and never get punished for it. Um, and so, I mean, it's like, dude, it's so obvious, so abundantly clear that Duke quote unquote cheats, right? Again, I don't think it's cheat. I don't think it should be deemed cheating, but you know, Mike Krzyzewski, this guy who, you know, just maligned one and done for years. And, you know, it's just, oh, it's this. And it's Mike Krzyzewski has all the one and dones on the planet. And by the next, way, next year, he's got the top three recruits in the, in the yeah. country coming to him. And, and like, I don't want to, are we, are we being, wanna... are we being serious? Like that, the fact that he, he's, he's not like, or not him, but like something in that program where they're not a state school, they don't have to actually put the books together like Louisville, where it's like, there's not something going on with with where that uh, that um, Nike money is coming from. Like where I have it, I have it from several really really reliable sources, and I, I don't that like. And I I could tell you who at Duke in. Uh, uh, I have it from several places. And and by the way, it's not just Duke. I mean, it's everyone, dude. It's everyone. I'm just saying Duke because Shashevsky in particular is had kind of reputation as you know like this sort this of clean moral, cut clean cut know, guy. And, and like because right. like i don't think bill, like bill self i think everybody kind of assumes like kansas does it but it's like eh, it's bill self like that's kind of his style like he's not quite as sanctimonious um you know so but it's like it's just to me i just don't care i wish we could i just, don't care like, either be candid about it all and like maybe you know have some some I don't know, Matt, are you a little more like, you know, believe in amateurism? Because I apologize if we've just rained on that parade. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it. Opinion on it. <laughs> you <gotta> rem- <laughs> it's, it's just you got to remember, too, is like for UMass fans, there's like there's a hard history of of kind of like sanctimonious fans, like rubbing in the, you know, Calipari banner, you know, taking away the banner and this and that. And it's like, OK, 
Sure. You know, Marcus can't yeah. be 28 grand in a, a chain or whatever. But like, who do you, like, I just want to ask every person who says that, like, who do you root for? Like, what, yeah, what program exactly. do you root for that, that is clean? Like, give me a break. Yeah. And that's why I don't go after other programs. Like, when shit went down at UConn or whatever, I was like, eh, you know what? Like, I don't like UConn, but I'm not like, I'm not fired up because it, this went down at UConn. It's like, it's, it's all like, obviously, right. like Michigan State, Penn State. Like sexual abuse scandals, like that's fucked up. Okay. Like that is like that's a cover up, yeah, you know, yeah. but like a kid taking money from an AU runner, I don't care. Also, right, I just now. want to tell your fans oh. for my fantasy team in our in our A ten league. Um <laughs> so I can pull this out. Number one. You team. got you got Pipkins on your squad? You know, in fact, I don't have a single UMass player on my oh, squad. Oh man, that sucks. But. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Matt, thanks thanks so much, much. Matt. This was great. I'll talk to you guys soon and maybe see you at a game. That'd be great. Appreciate it. It's time for Sam the Mailman, your UMass Athletics mailbag updates. Okay, an anonymous fan reached out, uh, whose name shall remain nameless, for our first mailbag question tonight. And he said, what has been the most gut-wrenching loss this season and gut-wrenching loss all time? And do you feel that erodes or strengthens your fandom? Very, very solid questions from Mr. Anonymous. I was thinking about it today. For me, the most gut-wrenching loss this year was the BYU game in Brooklyn where yeah. we blew the 8- the or 10-point lead in the last four or five minutes, and it just felt like here we go again. It felt eerily like the Mrs. the Ole Miss game last year, and it felt like some of the you know uh, prevent offense that Kellogg you know employed in the, in the Kellogg years. And um, CJ's just like I lose my mind for whatever reason when CJ is dribbling too much at the end of a game. And that game really was, you know, the hardest. There there were other games this year that were really disappointing, you know, devastating losses. But like the Harvard game, you know, at that time we, were, we thought we were going to be so bad that it was kind of encouraging. And like we got back into it and we went to overtime. And then the Quinnipiac loss was just like, it, it sucked, but it was like, we played so badly that we didn't really even deserve to win. And it's just like, that happens, whatever. Um, all time for me is probably, it's almost definitely, I think Cal and I will probably say the same thing, is probably the Charlotte loss. Uh, oh, Charlotte no in, the, in 2008 um, in uh, Atlantic City. To, uh, they needed one win and they were locked to the tournament. <laughs> And they blew a 17-point lead. Lee Meyer Goldwater. Lee Meyer Goldwater, baby. The team was really the team had all caught the flu. I mean, I can't believe, by the way, I cannot believe it's been 10 years. It's like that's like almost scary to me. Like it's just like because like I was a living, breathing, regular human, and that was 10 years ago. Like I remember, you know. And I'll tell you the story of that real quickly. I was at I went to another college and I came back, and so where I was at that time was I came back for um, my uh, for my senior year spring break. I went on a cruise for four days, and the other guys went on and, and like, road trip back to campus. 
So they had another like three or four days. I came back because I had to finish my senior thesis, which wasn't terribly good. I probably had to bang out like 25 more pages of this history thesis of a 120 page document in like four days. And I, that was the only time I took a break, right? I'm in, uh, I'm in a computer lab. Nobody's on campus. It's not UMass. I'm watching this game on a computer, which the stream was fairly good. And <laughs> I'm like, now, <laughs> 10 years ago, the stream was better. And I'm in a computer lab. I, I vividly remember it. It's in the basement of, of these dormitories in a dining hall. No one on campus, right? Papers strewn about the floor. Like, you know, me trying to organize this thesis that like didn't even get honors because I fucking was so devastated about this loss. Got like, there's a, we're going to give you a token B plus. Like you didn't really have a conclusion. I was like, well, let me tell you the real conclusion. It's that I stopped working after that loss. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I'm literally not kidding. So the, the, the papers are strewn everywhere. And, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna take my two hours to watch the game. It's like a Thursday night, I guess, in the quarters, whatever it was. And they lose that game. And I still have like 20 pages left. My friends are all on senior spring break. I've lost the chance for UMass to go back to the tournament. I'm like, I know I'm not going to be able to finish this thesis in a meaningful way and put a real conclusion together. <laughs> and it's just like, what is existence? That was as low as you can get as a fan. It's like seared into my mind. It is genuinely traumatic. And I would say it's only strength in my connection. Cause here I am 10 years later. Yeah. Um, I have kind of a similar story to you, which, well, not similar. I shouldn't say, similar, but like, it, this was my first year at UMass and I, I never really rooted for UMass before prior to me going there. So this was my freshman year, not to, not to, not to date you or age you stage a little bit here, but I was a freshman in college and I, I rooted for the Monty Mac teams. I obviously was like in elementary school for the Marcus Camby team. So it was like, I always knew that, like I always rooted for UMass, but I wasn't like a diehard until I got to campus. And I was like, holy shit. Like, this is a fun freaking team to root for. And I, I was in the, ba it was, it was, uh, it, it was spring break of that year. And I was in my girlfriend at the time who was a year younger than me. So she was still in high school. Uh, I was in her basement watching the game, and basically I just ignored her for about Wait, two hours. Wait, you were on spring break too? I was on spring, yeah, I was on spring break, but I wasn't on spring break. I was just home. So I was dating this girl from my high school who was in a senior in high school, and so she was a year younger than me, and I was a freshman in college. So basically I was in her basement watching this game, like just going insane because UMass had like a 20 point or 18 point lead, I think at the half and Lee Meyer Goldwire destroyed my life that night. And it was just so devastating because I'd gone to, I, I basically had gone to every single game that year. It was my freshman year. I, I, I all my friends who I'd met, who I'm still really, really close with to this day, we went to every game that year. And it was, it was so fun. Like Gary Forbes was just like, a, like a next level talent for UMass. And it was like, I, I had built my friendship with UMass basketball that year. And it was, I mean, God, that was so devastating. It really was like, it, it, and then at the same time, I ended up having like an amazing experience with those same friends at 
Madison Square Garden like three weeks later when they went to the NIT semis in the finals. So it's like, you know, you take the good with the bad, but that was the most devastating. And it was my first year of you, like true UMass fandom. It was my first year of that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was horrible. It really was like, that was a tournament team. I still am so convinced that that team gets in at, at an 11 seed or a 10 seed and gets the right matchups. Like that's a, that's, it might be a sweet 16 team. Like that team was so freaking good. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Not much else to say. It was a devastating loss. It's amazing. also, like when you look back so many years later, kind of like what you remember about that game, you know, like, it, yeah. It's funny because like I, I can't remember the specific plays. I just remember I think it was probably like what is this like a sixty four sixty one type of game, but I could be totally wrong. It could have been eighty to seventy seven. No, I, I think it was. I think it was more than that. But yeah, I'll look it up right now. So, Either but way, it's weird. It was like, like it was a de- like like Charlotte just kept. Lee Meyer Goldwire just hit every shot in the book, and it was well. And that's the thing: you remember his name, you remember the shots, and then you remember where you were. Like that, it's so interesting. Both of us remember him and where we were. Like that's what's yeah. so weird about it. Because like the plays, the plays are the plays, you know. But like the 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 feeling is like that's. Oh man, that was fucking bad. All right, um, let's see what else I got here tonight. So. Questions. I mean, Goldwire. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> yeah, hit, tell me what the score was. What was the final? It was. Uh, oh shit! Hold on, give me a second. It was. You're no. You're you're right. Way more than I am. Uh, it was 69-65, and Charlotte scored 50 points in the second half. UMass was up 36 to 19 at, at the oh, end of the first oh half. Oh my god! 36 <laughs> to 19 at the end of the first half. The second half was 50 to 29, and it was. I mean, I don't even know what really happened. I'm looking at the box score right now. Ricky well, Harris. Well, I think we were still up late. Like it was like oh, we were like hundred percent. It was it was like a last two to three minute loss. It was like it was like we we're still up like six or eight with like four or five minutes to go, and you're like well, okay, and then like you just feel it. Oh, that's the worst it just, feeling. Like it was horrible, dude. Like, that was I, a little. That's like how the BYU game this year felt on a, on like a very very micro level where you just yeah know it's going to slip away at a certain point. All right, all right. Let's see what yeah. else we got. Anyway, let's see. Um, yeah. I can I can go on about the game forever. All right. So we talked about some of these questions. God actually, damn. actually, Fleetwood Pat, good friend of the show, asked a similar question to what Matt Shelton I asked about. You know, a ten kind of where it stands. For, is it a four bid league in the next couple of years? So I'm not going to get into that, but it is an interesting topic. Um, Everybody keeps asking when will Whipple's extension be announced. Like, I just don't really care. Probably when I don't. It's probably like a state thing, and maybe around tax time. I have no idea. So, Mass Attack 05, the great Josh Smith, a good friend of the show, says, "Am I nuts for thinking this is a tournament team next season? I feel like I'm not nuts. So, right now." I don't feel like you're nuts either, but I think I was thinking about this and particularly in the context of what we were talking about with Matt earlier on the show. It's really hard to get into the into the uh, NCAA tournament as an Atlantic 10 team. It, it's just hard. And so yeah. when I start thinking about what is what it actually requires, right? you start thinking, okay, well, what does it require? So what it requires is next year in your 13 or your 12 or 13 non-conference games, 
you basically have to have a minimum, especially with a down A10, a minimum of two quality non-conference wins, ideally at least three. Now, fortunately, Bamford has put and, and McCall, McCall have put together a schedule in such a way where they have Georgia on the road next year. They have Providence on the road next year. I believe they may have South Carolina at home, but that might actually be the following year. They have a good Harvard team at home, but that never counts with in the committee's eyes, unfortunately, all that much. And they may have one other, uh, you know, so, and then they're going to have these, there's apparently going to be a, a tournament. There, there's talk of a, of a tournament games in, in Vegas or, or in Mohegan Sun or something like that, that I'm hearing. So you'll probably get five, maybe six shots at kind of respectable opponents. And the truth is, you probably have to go minimum three and three, maybe four and two. And then you go into conference play, you get 18 games. The league's going to be better next year. VCU will be improved. Duquesne, you know, as much as they've struggled lately, they have like everybody back and they're going to be solid. Oh, yeah. Running. they. And, I actually kind of love Duquesne's. And we're going to uh, go on the road there next year because we right. play them at home this year. So. Uh, that's not ideal. Richmond is going to be good again, but we get them at home most likely. Um, you know, roadie is still going to be solid. You play them twice probably. So, you know, oh, they're going to be, they're going to be really good. I mean, I don't know about really good. They lose a lot. I mean, they lose. They definitely lose. They, well, I mean, Terrell and EC is like a, a huge loss, but like they've done so much without EC already. And, Jar- and Jarvis Garrett is solid. And Garrett, they, you're they, right. Good, good point. Good point. That's, I mean, that's and, really and, good. and they might lose their coach. Like let's, let's, let's. No, it, that's not. It. Yeah. That's not out of the question. So, but sure. look, I mean, look, the, the point is the A-10 will be slightly better. St. Louis will be better. You're going to be playing at St. Louis. Um, Bana's down. I think that's a win. Um, you know, I think LaSalle is not going to be good, and you probably win both those. But but the point is, like, it's not – you still have to grind to get 12 wins minimum, right? And that assumes yeah. that you go, like, 9 and 4. Well, now you're only at 21 and, like, 10. You still go into Brooklyn, and you got to win two, three games, right? Easy, two games easily. Minimum. If, you're 21, if you're 21 and 10, you got to win. you got to win two in Brooklyn for sure. And, and that's two, and you still might be on the bubble, right? So it's just like, you know, it sounds like, oh, man, they got a lot of talent coming in. Pip's going to be a junior after leading the league. No, you got to – yeah. It sounds it, great, but, like, yeah. also I want to say this. The transfers, if you look historically, I, I'd love to have our buddy McKinney look up the data on this. But the transfers, it takes an, a full slate of non-conference play yeah. for the transfers to get fully acclimated. And so is, you know, is, is Curtis Cobb's shot there on day one? Okay, maybe it's their day one of conference play, but maybe not day one of the, you know, is, is, jo- is Jonathan Laurent, you know, ready to just sort of seamlessly slide into the offense and be, you know, be like a, a, a nine and six guy on day one? It is, you know, is, um, you know it, how good is Trey Wood as a freshman? Somebody has missed basically his whole senior year of high school with a knee, with a, blown you know knee so they're, they're and we don't know what's going to happen to yeah we don't know what's going to happen to Rayshon holloway baldwin is doesn't yeah he's going to be there so there's a lot of question marks yeah i don't want to yeah. like I'll, I'll stop you right there because like i saw this question on your on your twitter feed and i just thought to myself there are and, and you just put them all out there very eloquently there are so many things that have to go right for this team to be in a tournament next year like the fact that 
you have so many incoming players, whether it be transfers or freshmen. It's just absurd how that group has to mesh from day one for this team to be a tournament team. And the, from, from the A-10, like, you don't get 10 loss A-10 teams. Like, you just, like, it, it's really hard to have a 10 loss A-10 team in the NCAA tournament unless you have crazy, crazy good wins. Right, and, and it's not like we're playing Duke and we have a chance right. to beat Duke. That's what, you know I'm, what saying. I'm saying. Right, you're not, you're not in the ACC, like, okay. you're not in the SEC, like, like yeah. You beat like an eight seed Providence and like an NIT Georgia on the road. Like this is okay. this is the benefit of being in a better league where like you can have these lumps and then go on a go on a sick run in in the uh, in conference play and you're able to make the A10 tournament. You're not able to do that with the, with an Atlantic Ten team. So it's you know as much as I am very hopeful and I'm super pumped to watch next year's team. There is so much that has to go right from, I'm not kidding, from literally week one, like day seven of this team being together where they are gelling and they're meshing for them to make a serious run at, at the NCAA tournament. Like, and I remember when UMass, yeah. had started, when UMass had the monster non-conference slate, Kellogg's uh, sixth year, 2014, 13-14, right. that group when they were beating like New Mexico and Clemson and or who maybe not Clemson, New Mexico and somebody else in Charleston, they beat maybe maybe Clemson it was I don't know. Um, those that team was like full of yeah. fifth year seniors, yeah. fourth year juniors. I mean, Samson Carter Dude, was the, back for what felt like his sixteenth season. The, the 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 headline of the Daily Collegian, the the school newspaper, was it's time to dance like. This is it. Like, we have to do it this year. And they came out gangbusters and killed everybody the first 16 games of that game. And partly that's because other teams are, like, figuring their shit out. Right. And and UMass was, like, Chaz was a fifth-year guy. Uh, Sampson was back after that injury for his fifth year. Putney was a fifth year. Caddy was a fourth-year junior. Putney was a fifth-year guy. So it's, like, six games into the season. These guys have played, like, four seasons of college basketball and right. everybody else is like, eh, figuring their shit out. So you still win against the New Mexico or, you know, whoever. Um, and so that's the, you know, Providence, whatever. And Derek Gordon, who had sat out a year is, you know, after having like, you know, so they were just like so experienced. And this year, next that year. Team was, that team was like, let's, let's be honest. That team was loaded. Like they, they were, were loaded. I they mean, they so still, like, didn't have like very many, like just like regular solid basketball players like there wasn't like a guy it's like all right i need to knock down three it's like yeah but you put you put i I, i'm so convinced you put putney on like a oh man you put putney on st joe's you put i mean i know you don't like um no i mean yeah yeah, i just think like putney is like putney was a really really good college basketball player yeah also he's been a monster in uh the d league by the way yeah i i i'm i was i think of my prediction of him getting an uh nba contract is gonna end up being wrong, but uh, like I, he's been so damn good. Like as a six nine guy, like I, I don't know. Either way, we we can move on from that. Let's do one more question to end the show because it's been a long show, and but also yeah, we're gonna, not we're, quite this, ready. this might be a two hour show. This would be great. Yeah. Um. All right. So if anyone's still listening, this would be. This would be I great. asked for I asked for questions, and everybody's just like, just like having a conversation in the comments. 
(laughs) Zach is God is talking about uh, football or something. And uh, I'll do I'll do a football question if we have one. Yeah, I'm just trying to find anything. It's not okay. So uh, let's see. Staying on the football focus and for your guest tonight, should VCU – well, we already lost that, but should VCU start a football team? Uh, it's like, no, I don't care. I don't give a, <laughs> I don't I, give a, sh- I don't, I don't give I a don't shit. I don't give a shit about that, to I be don't honest. give a shit what the um, fuck VCU does. Can we – wait, can I, can I like, say like two things about the football program? Yes, yes, right. go for it. So Brighton Barr coming back to this football team is absolutely massive because – he Wasn't was that like announced two months ago. Yeah, it was announced a long time ago, but we haven't talked about it all in this podcast. I just, I just want to say, like, he is, he was the leader of the defense last year. He was a middle linebacker. He put everyone in position last year, and it is going to be so much more important for next year's team, where they're basically re- replacing their entire front four. And he's still coming <laughs> back. He's going to be like a. I, he honestly, I think he might be a seventh year senior. He's. Had horrible injury luck. Like I God think bless. it might be eight. Believe it or not, I kid you yeah, not. Yeah, he's super old. Like, and, and God bless the kid. Like, he's gonna. Be, he might be a twenty-five year old graduating senior. Which, granted, he's gonna have his master's degree. So good for him for riding out this scholarship as long as he possibly could. Um, but him coming back next year is absolutely huge. Uh, and also the fact that they brought in a bunch of old linemen to actually protect um, to protect Ford who was sacked the most of any single quarterback in the league per game last year. I, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to this team next year has to make a bowl game. I I am so out on Whipple. If they don't make a bowl game next year, they have the schedule for it. They have uh, road games that are close to home uh, with BC next year. And I, I like, I'm just, I'm of the belief that if if they don't make a bowl game next year, and the the Whipple extension is actually kind of a, a curious curious uh, topic for me as well because I actually do see the details of it. If he get more than one year, I I'd be very surprised because I think Bamford is a kind of a cutthroat type of AD. Uh, but if they don't make a bowl game next year, it's it's trouble for Mark Whipple because this team is. Other than the front seven, they're bringing back their entire D-backs. They're bringing back most of their offensive line, and they could pros- possibly replace some of their O-line with some incoming freshmen that were really, really highly recruited. Uh, they have crazy, crazy good skill guys and a quarterback that I honestly believe could be an NFL player. It, it's at the point where, like, this is it. Like, you have to make a bowl game next year. So that's my two I, – I think I made about three or four points there, but that's my that's – my, four cents on and on it's going to be a great off season for us to plan a big time a big time tailgate either for the bc road game or the UConn oh, road game. dude the bc i am well first of all the bc bc doesn't have tailgating they're the worst so where uh, do you go for it so i actually experienced i so i went to a bat a, a bachelor party for a bc football game against louisville when lamar jackson was winning <laughs> Sounds like a bachelor party. Oh, it was horrible. We we stayed for a half, then we like went out into Boston. It was terrible. These but were anyway. not UMass guys, I presume. No, none of them were UMass guys. It was one of my buddies from high school who just like 
didn't really know what to do for his bachelor party. So we all went to a BC football game. I hated it. Uh, it was, it was actually hilarious. How many people like rooting against BC while I was in the stands of a BC football game. It was wild. But anyway, it, it costs you like $500 to buy a parking spot, just to tailgate for a BC football game. And I'm not, that is not an exaggeration. Uh, it might actually be more than that. It, it was like horrible. Um, so, if we want to plan like a UMass tailgate, it might have to be at a bar in Brighton where we all meet up at a bar and then like Uber over or take a bus over to the BC football game because it is actually genuinely hard to tailgate for a BC football game unless you want to pay out your ass um, for a spot. It's 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 actually a, like a hard proposition. Got it. Yeah. But anyway, we'll figure it out. All right, I'm folks. definitely going to that game. Let's call it a day. This was fun. Uh, oh, we're doing a golf tournament in the offseason. Section W golf tournament, by the way. Holy shit, I'm so down for that. Honestly. Fundraiser for the show, maybe. I don't know. Um, all right, gang, it's been real. Thanks for Matt coming on. And if you're at the uh, George Mason game this weekend, holler at your boy. Yeah, Peace. rate, subscribe. We love you all. This was fun. Uh, Matt was awesome. Um, thanks so much. Love you guys.